Good morning, Valley Forge, King of Prussia, and the greater Philadelphia area. Welcome to We the People, the Constitution Matters, coming to you over the freedom airways of WFYL. And by the way, happy St. Patrick's Day. And you might think St. Patrick's Day is just about, the, you know, green beer and things like that. No, no, no. We ought to really look at St. Patrick's Day as a celebration of liberty because it was St. Patrick, as he evangelized the Irish, led them to faith in Jesus Christ, that he realized these pagans had no idea about God's justice. They had no idea about law. And so he wrote a book, Ex Moesius, the, the laws of Moses. He expounded the Old Testament laws for the people of Ireland, and he published this book. And basically, every place he planted a church, he established that book in the church as well as the Bible. And then that uh, book happened across the uh, channel and wound up over in Scotland and in England. And King Alfred was trained by his tutor on St. Patrick's book. And therefore, when King Albert, uh, uh, Alfred, excuse me, when King Alfred established what we know as English common law, he established it on the basis of what St. Patrick had written. In fact, he only added uh, a, a section, an introduction, you might say, to St. Patrick's uh, teaching. And that uh, introduction was about the Beatitudes. So we owe English common law to an Irishman, of all things. <laughs> so happy St. Patrick's Day. Well, we've got an interesting show for you this morning because we're going to look at one of the best cases recently from the Supreme Court. I know it's not perfect. None of the cases are perfect. They're done by human beings. But District of Columbia v. Heller in 2008. Very important case. And uh, Phil, why don't you bring us your thoughts on District of Columbia v. Heller? Well, first, thank you, uh, Pastor David, for that background. Uh, you know, of course, I'm one of those heathen Irishmen that uh, benefited by all of that. <laughs> but uh, back into the District of Columbia versus Heller, uh, the Federalist Society website describes the background of this case. Provisions of the District of Columbia Code made it illegal to carry an unregistered firearm and prohibited the registration of handguns, though the chief of police could issue one-year licenses for handguns. The code also contained provisions that required owners of lawfully registered firearms to keep them unloaded and disassembled or bound by a trigger lock or other similar device unless the firearms were located in a place of business or being used for legal recreational activities. Dick Anthony Heller was a District of Columbia special police officer who was authorized to carry a handgun while on duty. He applied for a one-year license for a handgun he wished to keep at home, but his application was denied. Heller sued the District of Columbia. He sought an injunction against the enforcement of the relevant parts of the code and argued that they violated his Second Amendment right to keep a functional firearm in his home without a license. The district court dismissed the complaint. The United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit reversed and held that the Second Amendment protects the right to keep firearms in the home for the purpose of self-defense, and the District of Columbia's requirement that firearms kept in the home be non-functional violated that right. The site raises this question at the end of this background information. Do the provisions of the District of Columbia Code that restrict the licensing of handguns and require licensed firearms kept in the home to be kept non-functional violate the Second Amendment? Although the language of the Second Amendment is quite clear, it is necessary to re review its language thoughtfully to understand the District of Columbia's position, a well-regulated militia, being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. The meaning and intent of the second part of this sentence is obvious. 
but it is the interpretation of the first part that has formed the basis of the anti-gun argument. Does the leading clause establish a condition limiting the truth of the independent clause, the second part of the sentence? Let's restate the Second Amendment to make the sentence conditional. A well to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed so long as they are members of a well-regulated militia. Notice that the meaning of this alternative has changed drastically. Critics can argue, however, that the sentence could be restated. That is a reasonable criticism, so let's shorten the sentence. If the people are members of a well-regulated militia, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. This language was available to those who created the Second Amendment. Why didn't they choose it if uh, that was their intent? This is an example of an exercise to which anti-gun promoters might be invited. Have them rewrite the Second Amendment with language they believe should have been used to express the idea that the right to bear arms was conditional upon the people being members of a well-regulated militia. Don't be surprised if they walk away frustrated. The Federalist Society website describes how the Supreme Court of the United States addressed this argument by anti-gun advocates. Justice a Antonin Scalia delivered the uh, opinion for the 5-4 majority. The court held that the first clause of the Second Amendment that references a militia is, is a prefatory clause that does not limit the operative clause of the amendment. What then is a prefatory clause? Let's attempt to define prefatory first. The Merriam-Webster site defines prefatory as one of relating to or constituting a preface, as in prefatory remarks, two located in front. On the surface, this seems to lead us nowhere. All it tells us is that a prefatory clause is positioned at the beginning of a sentence, but conditional clauses can also be positioned at the beginning of a sentence. Here are two more sentences with prefatory clauses. According to custom, Western languages are read from the left to the right on a piece of paper. The sun being exceptionally bright, sunbathers are cautioned to use sunscreen. There is a similarity and a difference in the two sentences. They are both non-conditional. The first sentence, the prefatory clause attempts to, to describe how the truth of the independent non-conditional clause came about. In the second sentence, the independent non-conditional clause remains true even when a day is partly cloudy. The sun being exceptionally bright only adds strength to the warning. If we were to allow an exception for completely overcast days, we might rewrite the second sentence, a uh, second sentence like this. Unless the day is completely overcast, sunbathers are cautioned to use sunscreen. Notice that the prefatory clause has become conditional. This exercise is useful because it should make us pause. Do we really believe that the people who framed the Second Amendment were so stupid that they did not understand the difference between conditional and non-conditional prefatory clauses? It appears we need to look elsewhere if we expect to get to the truth of the matter, uh, the meaning of the Second Amendment. Michael A. Paulses, a student at the University of California at Irvine, attempted to address the challenge in the fall 2008 issue of the Law Forum Journal. He identified three different models of thinking about the true meaning of the Second Amendment. He described the individual rights model as follows. Proponents of the individual rights model argue that the Second Amendment guarantees the right of all, individu uh, all individual citizens to own arms. Advocates for individual rights argue that the term the people in the amendment's operative 
Keep and Bear Arms Clause grants all individual citizens this right as individuals. The Prefatory Militia Clause, according to this theory, merely explains why such a right is needed. In other words, the Prefatory Clause clarifies that one purpose of the people's individual right to keep and bear arms is to defend their states, if needed, as an armed civilian militia. Under the individual rights view, the Militia Clause provides a purpose, but not an exclusive prerequisite for the right to, uh, to gun ownership. He then describes a second model, the collective rights model. Advocates for the collective rights argue that the Second Amendment protects each state's right to maintain a regulated militia, as indicated by the prefatory militia clause. Under this theory, the operative keep and bear arms clause creates a collective right on behalf of the state's citizens to keep and bear arms, but only for the reasons specified in the prefatory clause, that is, potential service in a well-regulated militia. Under the collective rights view, the prefatory clause provides a clear and distinct limitation on the scope of the operative clause. As such, the militia can be regulated by the states, plausibly to the extent that only those members of a highly organized military unit like the National Guard may own weapons. The third model, the hybrid rights model, can be ignored because the real opposition to the individual rights model is the collective rights model. The collective rights model, uh, the hybrid rights model, I'm sorry, the collective rights model conflicts with the philosophy of government manifested in the Declaration of Independence, but also the Constitution of 1787 and the Federalist Essays. Nowhere in those documents are states acknowledged to enjoy natural rights. The Declaration of Independence makes that clear with these statements. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely. Jefferson's declaration makes it clear that natural rights are enjoyed by persons. If he were writing the declaration today and wished to be politically correct, he might have stated that all men and women are created equal, but it is clear he was not speaking about some fuzzy collective. Government, a collective, is granted power by the people and that power can be revoked. Notice the argument under the collective rights model. The operative keep and bear arms clause creates a collective right on the behalf of the state citizens to keep and bear arms, but only for the reasons specified in the prefatory clause, that is potential service in the well-regulated militia. But we have already seen that the framers of the Second Amendment could easily have restated the Second Amendment to make that intent clear. There is also the conflict with the overall scope of the Bill of Rights. Acknowledge, acknowledging that the scope of the First Amendment is Congress, the scope of the Second to Eighth Amendments is the person. The Ninth Amendment is a proviso that makes it clear that rights are enjoyed by people naturally, as stated in those amendments. Uh, in those amendments is not excluded that others are enjoyed as well. The Tenth Amendment makes it clear that other than the powers the people have granted to the federal and state 
governments, all rights are retained by the people. The collective rights model goes on to claim the militia can be regulated by the states. Even if that were true, the District of Columbia is not a state. It was formed under Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution that states, the Congress shall have power to exercise exclusive legislation in all cases whatsoever over such district, not exceeding 10 miles square, as may by session of particular states and the acceptance of Congress become the seat of government of the United States. In other words, only Congress was empowered to pass legislation for the District of Columbia. While few would deny the district government the power to write rules within congressional legislation, the district government is not granted an exception to the Constitution of the United States. Finally, the collective rights model contains this assumption. Only those members of a highly organized military unit like the National Guard may own weapons. That assumption conflicts with history. The Bill of Rights was ratified in 1791, but according to Wikipedia, during World War I, Congress passed the National Defense Act of 1916, which required the use of the term National Guard for the state militias and further regulated them. Congress also authorized the states to maintain home guards, which were reserve forces outside of the National Guards being deployed by the federal government. That description is not totally correct since the United States were not at war until 1917. In any case, the authors of the Second Amendment could not have been referring to a military organization that was formed 125 years in the future. Even if the concept of limiting the possession of arms to those who were members of a well-regulated militia were true, what was the definition of militia at the time of the Bill of Rights were ratified? According to Noah Webster's 1828 dictionary, the definition of militia was the body of soldiers in a state enrolled for discipline but not engaged in actual service except in emergencies as distinguished from regular troops whose sole occupation is war or military service. The militia of a country are the able-bodied men organized into companies, regiments, and brigades with officers of all grades and required by law to attend military exercises on certain days only, but at other times left to pursue their usual occupation. For the sake of discussion, let's accept this definition. Although there may be some distance between the ideas of being enrolled in a military unit under the law for purposes of discipline and the language of the Second Amendment, a well-regulated militia, the stories we have heard about the Patriots defending Lexington and Concord suggests that their discipline was minimal. Note that the scope of eligibility is able-bodied men organized into military units. Nowhere does it mention that they may be issued to them. We do know that militia could fight with their own hunting rifles and were particularly effective against the British during the War of Independence. Of course, the citizenry in the 18th and 19th century possessed arms for other purposes, such as protection of homes and personal protection. We have seen enough Western movies to understand that the sheriff didn't pursue the bad guys because they had failed to license their six shooters. They were pursued because they had committed crimes. Gun licensing only became a reality in the 20th century and then under protest that licensing and registration violated the Second Amendment. So let's take a look at the Supreme Court opinion. For the reasons previously stated, neither the language of the Second Amendment nor the history of this nation supports the idea that either the federal or state governments have been empowered to control guns in the hands of peaceable citizens. Committing a crime with a weapon is a different matter. 
But it should be noted that committing assault with any weapon is a criminal act, not just a gun. The Supreme Court's opinion, according to the Federalist website, was the term militia should not be confined to those serving in the military because at the time the term referred to all able-bodied men who were capable of being called to such service. To read the amendment as limiting the right to bear arms only to those in a governed military force would be to create exactly the type of state-sponsored force against which the amendment was meant to protect people. Because the text of the amendment should be read in the matter that gives greatest effect to the plain meaning it would have had at the time it was written, the operative clause should be read to guarantee an individual right to possess and carry weapons in case of confrontation. While that may have satisfied those who were of the individual rights model thinking, it did not satisfy the four collectivists on the court, Justices Stevens, Souter, Ginsburg, and Breyer. It seems their political agenda drove their opinions, not the meaning of the Constitution of the United States. Oh, thank you, Phil. And I especially appreciate that you draw the distinction there between the collectivist view, that is uh, what we might call the gun grabber view, versus the individualist view, which is really uh, what our Constitution was crafted to uh, secure. And uh, you're absolutely right that the collectivist model contains that assumption that only, only the members of a highly organized military unit like the National Guard may own weapons. Now, I want to help dispel the idea that the National Guard is the militia. Because you talk to the average person, they say, oh, yeah, of course we have a militia. Our state militias are Maryland National Guard or Pennsylvania National Guard. Well, no, it is not. As per the 1933 National Guard Status Act, you can look it up, 1933 National Guard Status Act made the National Guard a component of the Army. How about that? And another 1933 Legislative Act amending the National Defense Act of 1916, which uh, you referred to, Phil, it provided, this is 1933, provided that those who enlisted in the state National Guard unit simultaneously enlisted in the National Guard of the United States and thereby, and thereby became deployable assets of the United States Army. And so that's why, you know, in my state here in Maryland, uh, our Air National Guard has been all over the Middle East, you know, fighting wars endlessly since 9-11, it seems, and not doing much here at all in the state of Maryland. They're not our Maryland National Guard. In addition to that, the total force policy of 1973 requires that all active and reserve military organizations, which, by the way, would include the National Guard as a military organization, all active and reserve military organizations be treated as a single integrated force. It's all part of the standing army, in other words. And so by our founders' very definition, the current National Guard is in no way the militia that is referred to uh, by our Constitution. By the way, it's not just the Second Amendment that refers to the militia. There's five uh, individual references to the militia in our Constitution. And, and notably, we need to see that uh, that phrase in the first part of the Second Amendment, the militia is necessary to the security of a free state. That is, if you don't have a militia, uh, then you're not going to have security for your God-given rights being protected. And you say, well, wait, why would that be? Why would we not have security if we don't have a militia? Well, our founders explained it this way. Noah Webster said this, before a standing army or a tyrannical government can rule, the people must be disarmed, as they are in almost every kingdom in Europe. 
The supreme power in America cannot enforce unjust laws by the sword because the whole body of the people are armed and constitute a force superior to any band of regular or professional troops that can be on any pretense raised in the United States. That is 1787, the year the, the Constitution was ratified. So clearly our founders understood the, the militia is there to protect us from a tyrannical government, just as the militia at Lexington and Concord were protecting the people of those towns from the gun-grabbing attempts of King George III uh, through his military excursion into, into their towns. So we need to clearly distinguish between the idea of the militia and any other military force. It is a separate thing from all of those. In fact, it's essential to our liberty because if we don't have a militia and the government goes tyrannical, we have no defense against the tyrannical government because clearly right now, opposite of what Noah Webster talked about, we do have a standing army that has military weapons far greater than what we, the average citizen, have in our possession. In fact, <laughs> Biden infamously said that uh, you can't go to war against uh, the United States government because, referring to the militias, oh, because we've got F-15s and we've got nuclear bombs. Well, wait a minute. Uh, okay, yeah, I get the point. You've got greater military hardware than we, the people, but that does that mean that you intend to use those against we, the people. That's the very definition of the kind of tyranny that our founders opposed and, and, and that our founders actually overthrew uh, when they established our republic and then went on to establish uh, our constitution. Now, the framers also uh, clearly said the ownership of firearms as a protection of freedom against not just foreign invasion, but a free, free freedom against domestic tyranny was essential. Uh, Thomas Jefferson famously said, no free man shall ever be debarred the use of arms. And Samuel Adams, who's often called the father of the war for independence, said, the Constitution shall never be construed to prevent the people of the United States who are peaceable citizens from keeping their own arms. You couldn't be any clearer. So how in the world do we get into this state where this collectivist view and the, the anti-gun, the, the gun grabbing, we got there because we've ignored what our founders said. In fact, we've ignored the true understanding of the Second Amendment. That's one of the beauties of, of the Heller case here, that uh, a restoration, and uh, Mike, I'm sure you can fill us in on some of the details. It probably isn't the best restoration, but at least a partial restoration of the right to keep and bear arms was uh, uh, reestablished in Heller. So in that, in that case, that's why we call this one of the decent dozen cases of the Supreme Court that they got it right and they at least moved the ball in the right direction. Now, there's still plenty of distance to go, I believe, in that battle against uh, the collectivists who would steal our God-given right to keep and bear arms and uh, what, what ought to be restored. By the way, from what I understand, there may be only one state in the Union that really has a functioning militia, and I understand that that may be the state of Alaska, at least that's uh, reports that I have heard. And I know that other people who have attempted to establish uh, militias in their state have been infiltrated by the FBI. I'm curious, okay? They want to follow the Constitution and the FBI uh, commits, uh, is uh, acting like they're terrorists. No, no, no. The FBI is the terrorist in that case. But anyway, the FBI has infiltrated and arrested, imprisoned people in Michigan and other places that have attempted. And so it's very dangerous, quite apparently, right now to attempt to establish a state militia. But it really needs to happen. And it should happen because it's the job of the governor of each state 
who sworn an oath to uphold the Constitution, which mean he has sworn to uphold the Second Amendment, which is a, a well-regulated militia, is something that is his job description to see to it that it is created in his state and is available to protect we the people against tyranny that may come our way from Washington, D.C. And believe me, there's plenty of tyranny coming from Washington, D.C. Uh, just look at what happened after January 6th. The Capitol was surrounded by what? National Guard troops. Oh, wait a minute. They were serving who? Oh, they were serving Nancy Pelosi to you know, scare us all in the fact that, oh, there's this great domestic terrorism. No, no, no. It was not the people, we the people that were the terrorists or the, we the people that were the threat to liberty. It was uh, Congress, and that's why we the people gathered there on January 6th to try to protest uh, the theft of an election. But I know I'm, I, I digress here. And Mike, you have a great deal of expertise, so we, we turn to you. Share with us uh, your view on Heller. Thanks, Pastor Whitney. You know, I think we could do a four-hour episode on this one if we really wanted to, because you have to understand that there's so uh, few cases that deal with the Second Amendment, particularly at this time when the Heller opinion came down. You had not seen a Second Amendment opinion since the Miller case, which dealt with the constitutionality of the National Firearms Act of 1934. We could probably have a whole other hour-long episode on what happened in that Miller case Ultimately, people went missing. Uh, there were procedural flaws in what took place. And it was a very, very fishy sort of situation. Um, but ultimately, we go all the way until 2008 where we got the, the Heller opinion. And we're at a place in this country at that point in time where the Second Amendment challenges have been ignored to such a degree by the Supreme Court of the United States that the individual states were getting away with really whatever they wanted. And this case dealt with D.C. in particular. And even after this opinion, there was question as to whether the Second Amendment applied to the states, and the court ruled that it did in, in McDonald versus City of Chicago a few years afterwards. Um, and now, of course, today we've got the Bruin decision that came down in New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin just last summer, shedding a little more light on it. And uh, in a dissent on a Second Amendment-related case, and this took place after Heller, Justice Thomas and Justice Gorsuch uh, in the dissent uh, really admonished the Supreme Court for their failure to take up these kinds of cases. It was yet another challenge that was uh, not going to be heard by the Supreme Court. The court had decided not to hear it. And Clarence Thomas and Justice Gorsuch uh, said how this really isn't right because they hear all these other challenges on every other portion of the Constitution. And Justice Thomas called the Second Amendment disfavored right in that dissent. So when finally he had his opportunity to write his opinion in Bruin, he did not disappoint. Now, I, I want to start off by saying this. I've heard people say that the Second Amendment gives us the right to keep and bear arms. I want our listeners to ask themselves if this is true or false. Pastor Whitney, I want to ask you, is that true or false? Uh, that is false because that right comes from God. The Second Amendment simply secures that right that we have from God. Oh, now I can't ask Phil because you gave it away, Pastor oh, sorry. <laughs> I gave you too big an answer. <laughs> you were far too thorough with your answer. It is a trick question. The answer is false because the Second Amendment doesn't give us anything. It is intended to protect what our founders believe to be a pre-existing God-given right from interference by the government. And I want people to change their thinking when you look at our Second Amendment. And you know, the Supreme Court did look at state constitutions in this opinion, 
for some guidance and on the meaning of the Second Amendment. And in particular, I like to look at Pennsylvania's Constitution and the Declaration of Rights. Article 1, Section 21 states the right of the citizens to bear arms in defense of themselves and the state shall not be questioned. Now, boy, wouldn't that be great if that was the language of the Second Amendment, because you've got no mention of the militia, no mention of well-regulated, none of this nonsense that the anti-gunners try to use in order to confuse what our Second Amendment is all about. Phil did a great job talking about the prefatory clause. You have to be familiar with Scalia to understand that he was an absolute maniac when it came to grammar and language which is why you probably never heard of a prefatory clause. An example you can look to is his pet peeve involving the word however. His position was that you never start a sentence with however because it's a disjunctive, and when you use it to start a sentence, it's not disjoining anything. So a sentence such as, for example, however, there are some downsides to the Heller opinion, would be changed to, there are, however, some downsides to the Heller opinion. Now, as Scalia wrote, Quote, the amendment could be rephrased as because a well-regulated militia is necessary to the security of the free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. And in using that, he cited a treatise on government and constitutional law and a brief for professors on linguistics and English. An interesting note, we talked about the militia and the uh, accusation that it means the National Guard. Justin Stevens actually said that the Second Amendment protects the National Guard, but later, after he retired, wrote an editorial claiming that we should repeal the Second Amendment. So I found that interesting because it appears that he wants to get rid of the National Guard, if that's what it means after all. Uh, and when you look to the term well-regulated in and of itself, it's not what people are thinking on the anti-gun side in terms of more and more laws and regulations. This really just meant properly outfitted at the time. You could have a well-regulated timepiece, for example. This is a, a timepiece that was functioning properly. And finally, I want to talk a little bit about the right of the people. Because if you read through the Constitution, whenever they mention the term the people, guess who they're talking about? They're talking about the people. I know it's very difficult. I know you need to be some kind of scholar to figure this one out. But when they're talking about the right of the people, they mean it's a right of the people. Uh, so I hope that clears it up for anybody who's not too sure as to whether the Second Amendment protects a right of the people. <laughs> of course, they could have been a little bit better with the, the language, but that one sort of drives me nuts. Now... Ultimately, there are, however, some downsides to the Heller opinion. For example, I think that, uh, for one thing, they were dealing specifically with a law that prohibited keeping functional firearms in the home. And if you really look to the nitty-gritty of this opinion, what it really says, the Second Amendment protects at least the right to keep functional arms that are in common use at the time in the home for self-protection. It doesn't go beyond the front door. They didn't go further than that in this particular opinion. And it really seems to give me the vibe that I get from Pastor Whitney and Phil a whole lot is that the court shouldn't be going beyond what's presented before them. So although the, the gun guy in me wants the Supreme Court to just blow the the system to pieces and get rid of a bunch of unconstitutional laws that are oppressing people and preventing them from protecting themselves and their loved ones, uh, you do have to understand that if the court is staying within its authority, it's dealing with the case that is before them, 
And it did nothing more than that, which is why we've had all these subsequent challenges as to whether the Second Amendment protects people beyond their front door and carrying firearms. Another thing that uh, Scalia did in this opinion that I'm not sure was exactly necessary, as he pulled the punch and softened the blow, as far as things that do not directly relate to the specific case that was in front of them. And if you look in the specific language, he says, quote, nothing in our opinion should be taken to cast doubt on longstanding prohibitions on the possession of firearms by felons and the mentally ill or laws forbidding carrying of firearms in sensitive places such as schools and government buildings or laws imposing conditions and qualifications on the commercial sale of arms. It goes further to say, we also recognize another important limitation on the right to keep and carry arms. Miller said, as we have explained, that the sorts of weapons protected were those in common use at the time. We think that limitation is fairly supported by the historical tradition of prohibiting the carrying of dangerous and unusual weapons. So we had all these sorts of caveats that were thrown in there about the Second Amendment in this opinion that really uh, perhaps weren't even necessary to deal with the case that was at hand. Uh, it, but because this language is in there, we see it cited quite a bit from governments and from anti-gun folks who want to further restrict um, the the uh, the ability for people to to use firearms and own firearms and creating more and more regulations and legislation, which we already have a ton. So that is one downside that you'll see with the Heller opinion is he gave them a lot of room to to run with those sort of caveats there. And I want people to understand that as big of a win that this was in 2008 for gun owners, it really was, uh, it couldn't have, it's as, as good as it could have gotten because if, if it got any worse, it would have been detrimental because you're really one step away from having no protection on the right to bear arms whatsoever. Because you have to understand that with out of nine justices, this was a 5-4 decision, and you had four Supreme Court justices who would have ruled that the Second Amendment does not even protect an individual's right to have a, a firearm, a functional firearm, in their home for self-defense. Think about how close we were to having no Second Amendment at all in this country. And I know people celebrated the Heller decision, but if you, you step back and you look at it from that perspective, it shows how bad it really is and how close we are at any point in time to, lo to losing a right that the Second Amendment doesn't even give us, if you properly understand. Mm, excellent point. So would you say then some of those caveats are designed to go after semi-autos? Semi is, that, is that one of the caveats there? Say, oh, semi-autos, semi they, don't, they don't factor into this because... Our founders didn't have semi-autos in those days. I don't think it goes quite that far uh, because it talks about that are co in common use at the time. So semi-automatic firearms are certainly in common use at this time. So they are protected. Now, it becomes interesting as to whether through legislation and uh, forward thinking, the government could eventually uh, effectively ban something that's not in common use because it hasn't yet come to market or something like that and prohibit people from, from having those sorts of firearms. But as far as semi-automatic -auto weapons, it's by far and away the most common use at the time right now and 2008. So those are certainly protected. I, I thought that it's pretty interesting as well. If you look at the, the Miller case that Scalia cites there, 
that case particularly dealt with items that are covered under the National Firearms Act. And I believe that the Miller case dealt with a uh, short-barreled shotgun. And the reason they determined it not to be protected was it wouldn't be uh, effective for use in the militia, which, first of all, I, I don't know that that's even true. They came to that conclusion based on judicial notice. There was nobody arguing on the other side. Uh, but because yeah, I would think that you'd want pretty much anything you could get your hands on in that sort of a situation. Um, but let's suppose that that's true. The very argument you hear from people on the anti-gun side today is we've got to get rid of these weapons of war from being in people's hands, right? They say, oh, we got to ban these guns because they're weapons of war. Well, the Miller case said that they weren't protected because they weren't weapons of war. So, yeah, so it's a little ways. bit of a contradiction there. <laughs> you know, uh, Mike is a, a former uh, armor officer. Uh, I believe it is my right, if I wish to, to purchase a, a tank. Yeah. Uh, it's pretty impractical when you think of it. Can you imagine what it would take for me to raise the funds just to purchase an Abrams tank? And, you know, this is, this is the point that should be... Uh, emphasized in this that if something has changed since the the days of the uh, war of independence it is the the weaponry the technology has just increased uh, you know to such an extent that the weapons held by the government are not practically available to the citizens citizenry that's oh, true by, yeah. by the way you know you can get a free tank all you have to have is that your last name is Zelensky yeah, <laughs> uh, tax American taxpayers will give you a free tank, you know. <laughs> but uh, another subject altogether. Thinking about uh, things like uh, uh, accessories, uh, you know, the ban on bump stock. How did that get through when the Heller was? You know, t is there any relationship there, or did they just ignore Heller, or does Heller really not deal with with such an issue at all? So there's really a more focused argument on the bump stock issue. And I think the court's uh, really gotten this wrong. There is a circuit split right now. So you have an appellate court, I believe, in the Fifth Circuit who struck it down. But then you've got uh, court. the case out of Michigan was upheld. And what that case is really about is as to whether, as the statute is currently written, where it's even permissible. Because what they did to, to prohibit the bump stocks, to ban the bump stocks, was not write a new law saying bump stocks are illegal. What they did instead is they piggybacked off of the prohibition on uh, fully automatic weapons that are manufactured post May of 1986. Um, and even those pre-1986 were ultimately subject to the National Firearms Act and heavily regulated. And if you want to talk about something being cost prohibitive, Phil, you're the, econ the economics guy. Picture having every single fully automatic weapon that can be owned by the common peasants like you and I being in existence since before I was born, right? So if you want to purchase lawfully a fully automatic weapon in the United States, well, it's existed since pre-1986. And as a result, it, they're extremely expensive. So something that would have cost maybe $1,000 before this ban now costs at least $10,000 just to get in. And they could be upwards into this, well, to the six figures when you're dealing with these. But that's that's a practical issue. What happened with the bump stock is they effectively uh, made something up. They said that a bump stock is a machine gun, which is absolutely not because it does not, uh, it does not fire multiple rounds with one pull of the trigger. 
what the bump stock does, it allows the, beat, the trigger to be pulled over and over and over again. So what's being litigated now is whether the, their regulation even passes muster because it doesn't make any sense. They're basically saying something so when it in fact is not. So we'll see if that gets struck down ultimately. If I could make a comment about that, uh, what you're really talking about is, is uh, traditionally called a semi-automatic weapon. And uh, the, the, the classic semi-automatic weapon uh, years back was the M1 Garand rifle. And basically, um, you did not have to reload it. You didn't have to uh, uh, change the bolt in any way uh, to, to fire it as you did with the, the Springfield rifle. Uh, what you could do was to, to load a magazine in and uh, uh, pull the trigger. It would fire one one round and then you'd have to pull the trigger again and again and again so it was called semi-automatic not fully automatic which was the machine gun right and what the, the bump stock does it mimics i guess you could say something that is fully automatic but it's not doesn't meet the definition of a machine gun under the law the only way you get to a bump stock being a machine gun is if you rewrite your own definition of machine gun to mean a machine gun is something that goes bang, 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 bang really fast. Well, then, yeah, maybe you got a machine gun with a bump stock, but it's allowing the action of the firearm to uh, continue to cycle you to repeatedly pull that trigger over and over again. It's not one pull of the trigger that's discharging multiple rounds. And it's important that we get the details correct, because obviously uh, they're doing everything they can not only to restrict, but uh, obviously to attempt to register firearms. So does any of this speak at all to the registration issue, which uh, those who are gun advocates, I think, rightly say, wait a minute, registration is the first step towards uh, confiscation. Uh, that actually happened if people don't know in New York. And people, not a lot of people know about this incident that took place, but in Staten Island, when they did the whole registration thing. They ultimately came and confiscated, right? It was a natural progression. And when they went to confiscate somebody in Staten Island, uh, there were some very bad things happened. And I think the man ended up dead. Kind of like what we saw with the red flag in, in Maryland when that was first instituted, Pastor Whitney. I don't well, know if you're familiar yeah. with that case. Yes, actually, I've met with a widow whose husband was murdered in his living room without a gun in his hand and he was shot in the back five times it's uh, oh, so evil yeah yeah uh, that that's something that we see a lot of these registration schemes in, in different states i think the problem is that the amount of regulations and laws that we see not only at the federal level but we see them at the state level and the amount of restrictions are so voluminous that it's going to take forever to make any sort of headway on this and it's really a little by little by little thing and i know that people in the second amendment community obviously celebrate every little win that we get whether it's heller whether it's mcdonald and whether it's bruin uh, but it's just such a such a mess that in order to to get further and further it takes years at a time because of this litigation i believe that uh, i'm sorry i believe that uh uh france and uh, uh before the occupation by the nazis and also uh, uh, in Germany, socialist Germany, that they had registration, gun registration, which was ultimately used by the Nazis. There were the records they went and, and they used the, the records to uh, just take all the guns away from the, uh, the citizenry. So I know that some are, are getting around the registration laws by uh, doing what's called ghost guns, guns that are manufactured 80% and so forth so that you actually assemble it. But 
done without a serial number, and therefore there's no registration. And yet states, I, I believe our own state of Maryland here, and I don't know when it actually goes into effect, but they're basically going to declare an ex post facto law, which is illegal to say that something you did before the law passed was a crime when it wasn't a crime when you did it. That ex post. But anyway, they're basically saying if you have a ghost gun, you've committed a crime. And uh, this is outrageous. But that's what the left does. They try to uh, you know, chop off every possible loophole that uh, a, a person could create in order to not allow our God-given right to keep and bear arms to exist. So here's here's how they get around that one, Pastor Whitney, and that is true. You're seeing more and more states come up with regulations. I don't like to call them ghost guns because they call them ghost guns because it sounds scary, right? Uh, <laughs> ghost, boo, oh, it's scary. Uh, Casper. They're, they're homemade firearms, and people have made homemade firearms since the beginning of the, the existence of firearms, right? It's not something that's nefarious in and of itself. Um, but ultimately, you have these states and you know, these anti-gun people convincing people that it's incredibly dangerous. So uh, they, they're putting in these restrictions. And even at the federal level, we're seeing them try to crack down, not by way of legislation, but by way of regulation, right? You see executive orders coming down, down and how they're going to enforce certain things and what they declare firearms that require transfers and everything. But they had a similar issue in terms of when they started serialization of the requirement of serialization of firearms by manufacturers um, with, after the Gun Control Act in the 60s. And what one of the things that uh, they wrote into the law was that you couldn't have a firearm at all that had obliterated serial numbers. So suppose you had a firearm where the serial numbers were already obliterated. Well, it became illegal when that law went into effect. And the courts have held that that is not ex post facto really? because really? they're not punishing you for something that already took. They're punishing you for the possession that takes place after the law goes into effect. So presumably, there was one time in this country where there was no law saying cocaine's illegal, right? I'm just throwing that as, out as an example. I'm not an expert of cocaine law or anything, but presumably there was one point where the possession of cocaine was not illegal. Well, at some point, it became illegal. Now, if the government came after you and said, hey, uh, you, you had cocaine two weeks ago and this law went into effect today, so we're going to put you in jail for your possession of cocaine from two weeks ago, that would be ex post facto because they're punishing a, a conduct that took place in the past before the law. Now, if they say cocaine became illegal yesterday and you have cocaine today, even though you got it two weeks ago and we're going to punish you for your possession of cocaine today, that's not ex post facto. So that's how they get away with that. Ah, I see. Nice, nice uh, slippery trick. What, what I think people really need to realize is guns are not at all the danger. The Second Amendment exists because government is far more dangerous than any firearm that exists. Look at the history of the world today. Look at the past, one well, a little over 100 years, and all the major murders of hundreds of millions of people have been murdered by their own government, whether it's Stalin murdering Russians, Ukrainians, whether it's Mao Zedong murdering 100 million Chinese or Pol Pot murdering one-third of his Cambodian citizens or Hitler, or on and on the list goes of these tyrants, including Turkey, murdering millions of Armenians. All of these have been a government murdering people who they have disarmed before they murdered them. And that's, in my view, the whole point of the First Amendment. And people need to turn around 
and realize guns aren't half as dangerous as your government is. Pastor Whitney, I find that a lot of people own firearms out of a love for their family. It's because they want to be able to protect their wife or protect their kids or, you know, for females to protect their husband, protect their kids, protect their parents. And for many people that I know, myself included, if you own firearms, you carry firearms, it's to protect yourself, but that also comes out of a place of love because you know you've got to make it home to your family, that your family needs you. A lot of people on the left, the anti-gunners, will come out and say, how could you be a Christian and still be a gun owner and support this and support uh, perhaps killing somebody? Shouldn't you uh, turn the other cheek or something? <laughs> it's your ridiculous arguments that you're a Christian, so you have to let somebody else kill you or kill your family. Uh, do you get presented with that at all? Oh, I, I do all the time. And actually, I had a debate on the BBC with a gun-grabbing, quote-unquote, pastor at, because it was female, and uh, at a debate with NPR over the issue of God, not guns. But uh, I, in both of those debates, I read them what Jesus said. He said this in the upper room, just before they went out to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus was betrayed. He was surrounded by soldiers with weapons. And Jesus said to them, but now he that hath a purse, purse let him take it. And likewise his script, and he that hath no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. And by the way, the sword Jesus was referring to was the sword used in hand-to-hand -hand combat by the Romans. The gla uh, gladius is what it's referred to. It's a little bit longer than 18 inches. It's a formidable uh, two-edged weapon, sharply pointed. I have a, a reproduction of it. It's a pretty uh, fearsome tool. And Jesus told his soldiers, that his, his disciples, I'm not... In, in enlisting you as a soldier to overthrow the Roman Empire. That's not our purpose at all. But you need to have the means of self-defense to protect yourself and to protect those who you are responsible to protect. And this really fits with what the scripture says. This is 1 Timothy 5 and verse 8. But if any provide not for his own and especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. And so one of the provisions, one of the things that we are to provide according to scripture is protection of our family and therefore owning firearms to protect your family is a God-given duty, not not only a right, but a God-given duty that's actually related to the sixth commandment. The sixth commandment says, thou shalt not murder. Now, every commandment that has a negative such as this also has a positive corollary. And that positive corollary is that we are to defend life. So for example, Proverbs 24 verse 11, if thou forbear to deliver them that are drawn unto death and those that are ready to be slain, if thou sayest, behold, we knew it not, doth not he that pondereth the heart considereth it, that is God, and he that keepeth thy soul, doth not he know it? Shall not he render to every man according to his works? So we have a duty to protect life for those, like you're saying, family members that we are responsible for, and that duty requires that we have the means to do that. And so if we are confronted uh, with a situation where someone is seeking to take our life or the life of our loved ones, we have every duty to protect that life by using deadly force against those who come at us with deadly force. In another passage, not time to look at it, but Exodus 33, if somebody breaks into your house in the night, therefore you may not even be able to see whether they have a weapon or not, or there's a deadly weapon, you don't, it's in the dark. And if you kill them in your house, this is God's law, if you kill them in your house, it is not even manslaughter. There's no judgment that is to be committed against you because this person came in and threatened you in the middle of the night, and threatened your family, uh, and because it was dark, you couldn't see whether they were armed or not. Now, if it's daylight and they break in, then you can see whether they're armed, and that's a different situation. But at night, you cannot tell 
You have every right to take the life of someone who breaks into your house because the assumption is they have come in not for any good purpose. They have come in to do harm to yourself and to uh, your family. You're talking about the Bible, right? You're not yes, talking. that's right. He's not giving any legal advice. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> that's, 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 uh, those, those can be uh, tricky cases. Now, some states, like Pennsylvania, will have what's called the Castle Doctrine, where the law gives you a presumption that if somebody breaks into your home, that they did so with the intent of causing death, serious bodily injury, kidnapping, or rape. And the law will even presume that you had a reasonable belief that deadly force is immediately necessary to prevent death, serious bodily injury, kidnapping, or rape. But what you must understand is that presumption can be overcome by evidence, and that gets people in a whole lot of trouble. And, you know, people don't realize that guns protect and save more lives every day in America than actually take lives in America. And the evidence is very abundant for it's that. It's not and even we, close. Yeah. It's not <laughs> it's even just, close. And a friend of mine uh, said his uh, uh, cousin, a woman living alone, uh, uh, had a shotgun, and uh, she had a blank, oddly enough, but uh, she loaded the blank in the shotgun just to have it by her bed. And somebody broke in downstairs and she cranked the shotgun and warned, I'm armed. And she fired the blank. And, you know, she didn't get out of bed, didn't go downstairs, but she fired it. And uh, she heard a great commotion downstairs and then silence calling the police. She went down and investigated and she found that it was interesting. The back door, there was this bloody uh, streak on the, on the edge of the back door. And then the screen was broken through and so forth. And obviously, that's where the person escaped. But uh, in his haste to get out of the house, he missed the door frame and bashed his head and was bleeding because he was terrified. Why? The homeowner had a shotgun and he knew that his life was in danger to remain in that house. And that's the point. That's the point of owning firearms. It protects and defends life uh, far more cases than, than uh, guns are used to take lives. She's fortunate that uh, she didn't have a crazy person on drugs who was also armed and returned fire. But I suppose that guy turned up at the hospital somewhere and that's where they <laughs> caught him. <laughs> well, this is such an important topic and it's so relevant that... Uh, well, next week, just give us the title, uh, Mike, of what uh, case we're going to look at. We're going to add to our decent dozen and make it uh, a Baker's decent dozen. It's going to be New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin. It's another magnificent Second Amendment opinion authored by none other than Clarence Thomas and came down, decided on June 23rd, 2022. Amen. Well, this is We the People, the Constitution Matters, coming to you Friday mornings on the Freedom Airways of WFYL. Join us next Friday morning, 8 a.m. By the way, Mike has a show just before ours at 7 a.m. Mike G in the morning, The Law Matters.